You are listening to Gangland Wire, hosted by former Kansas City Police Intelligence Unit Detective Gary Jenkins. Welcome all you wiretappers out there. I'm here on the uh, Skype and and we're going to put this up as a podcast with our good friend Larry Henry from Northwest Arkansas, late of uh, Las Vegas. Used to be a newsman out in Las Vegas during uh, a lot of the mob stuff. He he covered it. He knows a lot of people out there and he writes a uh, a blog. It's a mob and, and popular culture for the Mob Museum out there in Las Vegas. And and so you need to, to go to the Mob Museum website. I think it's... Uh, uh, what is it? Welcome, Larry. Welcome. Glad to have you here. Thank you, Gary. Always good to see you in person and on Skype. <laughs> really? Yeah, it's, I think it's themobmuseum.org. And okay. yeah, so, so thank you for mentioning that. In fact, as you know, I was just out in Las Vegas recently for the world premiere of Mob Town, the new movie coming out. Yeah. Your, your podcast on the Appalachian Summit. Um, which which just aired and are on your website, Gangland Wire. Perfect timing because that whole Appalachian issue, Gary, is really popping up with your podcast with that new movie. So uh, oh, yeah, a fascinating topic. Sure, with that Irishman coming out, there's a huge amount of interest in, in mafia stuff. And, you know, that, that mob town, I've been wondering whatever happened to that. You're going you're gonna to fill us in on some of that, I know, because you're getting ready to leave, release a piece on that. See, I did... A year ago, I saw a blurb on Facebook that said they were making this movie, and I could tell it was a, kind of a, a, an A movie. It wasn't a B movie. It had name actors in it, and, and a, a studio had a budget and good high production values, and, and, and so I knew it was going to be, it should have been released, and, and then I, I made a Appalachian Convention two-part series for my podcast, and I sat on it, sat on it, and they didn't release it, they didn't release it. And then it came up November the 14th was the, uh, was the anniversary of Appalachian meeting. And, and so I thought, well, they're going to release it on November the 14th. And I watched and nothing was coming out. So I went ahead and released my podcast. I didn't know if they were ever going to release that movie. So I went ahead and, and put out my podcast telling about the, the uh, convention. And, and, you know, we did the Mob uh, Film Festival that weekend, uh, the night that my premiere of my new movie, Brothers Against Brothers, was on the anniversary of the uh, Mafia Convention, uh, November the 14th. So uh, I, I like to think that'll bring me luck, maybe. Who knows? But uh, Larry, tell us a little bit about why did it take so long for that movie to get out? Well, it's just part of making the movie and putting it together. It's funny, Gary, because I do want to talk about your new documentary, which which is outstanding. And uh, first, let's talk about Mob Town, which yeah. dovetails with your Appalachian Summit podcast with uh, the former Kansas City Police Sergeant, Kate uh, Kozol. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's great. That was a great podcast. Anyway, so out in Las Vegas at the end of the month, end of November, uh, the Mob Museum in their courthouse, which the Kefauver hearings were held in the 50s in that courthouse in the museum, used to be a post office in Las Vegas. As you know, Gary, you and I were there for the first Mob World Summit up in that building. So they had a world premiere for that new movie, Mob Town, which comes out in December, which is out of December for the uh, for wide release, and it was fantastic. It was a uh, it was the world premiere. They had the director, a guy who goes by the name Danny A, who's in the Irishman, by the way, and is a, is a uh, is an actor and a director. And 
Uh, David Arquette is in it. Um, you know, Jamie Lee uh, Sigler, who was Meadow Soprano, is in the movie. Now, some of the actors and the director and the screenwriter were up on stage at the Mob Museum premiere in late November. It was fantastic, and they showed the movie. Uh, there was a uh, there was an invitation only uh, a crowd of people there who watched it. It was fantastic. It really hit. Later, I was talking to the screenwriter about it, and he said it's interesting because. No one's ever really done anything big on the Appalachian Summit. Um, it's been touched on here and there. Um, I think Analyze This touched on it a little bit in the beginning, that comedic movie. Um, but it was re it, it's really a really strong movie. It, it does a lot of things. It gets into what really happened at the summit, as your podcast does. And it really plays into the uh, sort of a hero story with that sergeant, that, that state trooper sergeant, uh, Crosswell. Who's, who's played by David Arquette, who's kind of uh, put off by his superiors and, you know, a lot of people in power, lawyers, judges, uh, police officials, sort of give the mob a free run up there. This is in Appalachian, as you know, Gary, about 200 miles northwest of New York City by the Pennsylvania border, right. this little town where Joe Barbera, Joe the Barber, had his house and they had this summit of 100 or so mob members. Anyway, mob leaders, by the way. So anyway, this it's a story about it's an interesting twist on the mob story. It's this it's this police sergeant story and his sidekick, beautifully played by P.J. Byrne, a real funny uh, comedic element. But they're also they they did a lot of different things in the movie. Gary, they had a lot of comedy in it, not a lot of bloodshed. It's not the typical quote mob movie. Right. A lot of strong women characters. You know the the mob. Uh, Movie industry is criticized a lot for not really for stereotyping women. Yeah. So I think you're going to see a lot different in this movie that I think people are going to like a lot. Yeah. Well, if you think about it, there really wasn't a shooting. It was it was more the story of what happened afterwards. It was such it was a pivotal moment, Larry. I mean, I, I thought Bill Owsley, the retired agent, yeah. Bill Owsley has been on my show several times, and and he'll say, you know, that the FBI, he said, he, he won't he won't criticize J. Edgar Hoover at all. He won't say anything bad about him. He'll say, you know, he said, Mr. Hoover didn't really pay much attention to the mob before that. And, and then after that meeting, he said, then they started paying a little bit of attention. They realized that this is something we need to look at. And they created the Top Hoodlum Squad in every major city. And he was one of the early members of the Top Hoodlum Squad here in Kansas City. You know, the, what's the guy, what's the agent, Bill Romer up in Chicago? He, yeah. he kind of pioneered that whole, let's go after the mob by the tough FBI agents up in Chicago with their Top Hoodlum Squad. So that's, you know, in, in mob uh, lore, shall we say, uh, uh, that was such a pivotal moment. It was just, it was never the same after the Appalachian meeting. They really began to push it. It's funny because I think, I think until then, um, until that November 1957 meeting, uh, up north of New York City, northwest of New York City, I think the a the FBI uh, had 400 agents assigned to quote subversives, yeah, communist and all that. And only four to <laughs> yeah. organize crime figures. And then after that, after that summit, Gary, it's in the movie. It's beautiful. These yeah. guys, they're all up at Joe the Barber Barbera's home, beautifully played by David A. By the way, the director, uh, Danny A. I'm sorry, the director. They, uh, he, he. Uh, so, so they all scatter when they realize they're being watched, yeah. and there's a roadblock out. They scatter. And the Nick Savella was there, by the way, from Kansas City. So. 
they all scatter. And so after that, and they were all arrested, it was not, not all, I think 60 some odd of the 100 were arrested. But anyway, after that, yeah, it just really blew up. And, it, and, and the whole focus uh, by, the, by the FBI on the, on the mob finally began to really pick up steam. And after that, Robert Kennedy with his Get Hoffa squad and yeah. that whole focus really picked up, Gary. Yeah, it was amazing. That was, uh, and, and you know that uh, Joe the Barber dude, he, was, he had this cover going up there. And I think a lot of the local people didn't question anything about him. He had a business. He had, it was a, a soft drink bottling company up there in, in upstate New York and kind of, uh, you know, lived the life of a country gentleman, but he had, a, you know, a, would have had a decent stream of income coming in from that. And, uh, and so he had, a, he had the perfect cover. Uh, and, and, out, and I grew up in the country. And, you know, you, you, a guy like that, you just, you know, say, well, he's some guy from the city and you don't pay much attention to him. I'm surprised that state trooper uh, I know there's a whole backstory I talked about in my podcast because he had the state trooper already kind of knew who he was dealing with. He didn't just stumble into that, did he? Did they deal with that in the movie? Or but we, we don't want to give away too much. Yeah, they but, did. Uh, <laughs> no, it's a great movie, man. I really enjoyed the movie. It's uh, I think at the I think at the real life guy Sergeant Croswell, I think was 44 yeah. year old guy again, beautifully played by David Arquette. Great job. Again, kind of a Rocky Balboa story, kind of a hero story. He was kind of a not seen, not taken seriously. Yeah, kind of he overheard some conversation, I think, by uh, Barbera's son about right, needing right. some hotel rooms. And he was kind of a car nut, and he saw all these fancy cars in town. And so, and then he gave beautiful, beautiful scene, an actor named uh, Stevie Gutman, who, who, who plays this. So Barbera goes out and has to get all this meat, fish, all this kind of stuff in town for the event and begin to, 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 to really order it all. So he goes into this fish store and starts to try to order all the fish. And it's just a real funny scene as that unfolds. And meanwhile, later on, the, uh, the state trooper sergeant goes into a restaurant, tries to order a steak, tries to order. Everything's been taken already because they're using oh, it really? for uh, Barbera's, cool. <laughs> uh, b- b- Barbera's big event. So, yeah, the screenwriter later told me a lot of that's really yeah. based on what really happened, that, that, that they dried up all the meat and, and fish and food in town for, for this big cookout that they were going to have. It was supposedly, you know, Vito Genovese after it was not long after Albert right. Anastasia was shot down at that uh, barbershop in the in hotel on 7th Avenue in New York that uh, that uh, Genovese decided let's all get together and uh, figure out where we're going in the future in terms of leadership roles, in terms of head, the heroin trade and all that. And so, by the way, I have to say Vito Genovese has played beautifully in that movie by uh, Robert right. Davi. So I oh, think cool. you're going to like the movie a lot, Gary. I'm, I'm anxious to see that one because... Like you said, it's not really been dealt with in, in the popular culture and popular media other than as uh, kind of a sidelight. You know, like in uh, uh, Goodfellas, Ray Liotta talked with, you know, just his voiceover as Henry Hill. He's talking about how everything changed after uh, the, he called it the Appalachian Convention, which most people do. Most people, uh, I always call it the Appalachian Convention, but Bill Owsley straightened me out. He always called it the Appalachian Convention, which is the way you're supposed to pronounce it. <laughs> Well, it was funny because on your podcast, that was really funny when you got into the whole pronunciation and you said that Bill, Bill, tell you what to do. Because in the movie, this this actor, Robert Davi, singer, I think he does a lot of Sinatra tunes and that sort of thing. But in the movie, great job. I mean, he just has the he has the look. 
playing Genovese, and there's a funny scene. There's a lot of comedy, and it's not a yeah. it's not a comedy, but there's a lot in the movie that's funny. And one of the things funny is uh, the Genovese character sort of stumbles over. You know, here's this big powerful mob figure, and he stumbles over how to pronounce the name too. So the whole Appalachian <laughs> cool. pronunciation cool. even, even comes up that. in the that movie. Would be, yeah. it, would be, it would be funny. Yeah, they dealt with that. Yeah, because yeah. everybody fumbles <laughs> with it. Interesting. Interesting. Uh, well, I'm. Well, you mentioned, and you mentioned, by the way, Gary, I'm going to cut you off, but you mentioned the uh, Barbera home up in the sort of remote area. It reminds me, and I know we'll talk about it in a second, but it reminds me of your new documentary with uh, Sparrow, the Sparrow uh, guy who lived up, I forget the name of the town, Gary, lived up in a remote area outside of Kansas City. And as you were saying in your documentary, and some uh, some of the Savella crime family were saying, I know I'm jumping around, but they were saying that that house way out in the country that Sparrow was oh, yeah. in was hard to sit on. It was hard to hard to monitor. So yeah, so you get like Barbera up there in that remote place, and they thought they were they thought they were in a secluded area until the <laughs> yeah, roadblock got set. And up. he was smart enough to set up that roadblock because I'm telling you, you've never done this, I'm sure, but I have. You go into something, and there's a lot of people, and there's just a few of you. And all of a sudden, they just start, like a cubby of quail, they just start sprinting away or jumping in cars and leaving. And you're out there, you don't really know what you got. You, you, you're standing there, you know, you can't run people down. You, you, you can grab one, but you can't grab ten. <laughs> so he was smart enough, which Kate and I talked about, to smart enough to set roadblocks out there. So when they did, you know, take off in their cars... Then they had they could stop them out on the road. So it, it was the tactics were great, by the way, by Sergeant Cresswell. Yeah, it was. And as, as Kate said in your in your podcast, I remember that line Kate said about all those uh, mobsters and you know heavyweight yeah. mobsters. I think I think mob figures from thirteen states. You had Carlos Marcello and you know Nick Savella. I mean, you had all the New York uh, top top mobsters. As Kate said in your podcast, Gary, that must oh, have yeah, been a sight yeah, to see. With the alligator shoes and the fancy suit. And I think some of them had some crazy, uh, you know, they said, well, we were just uh, out looking for yeah. real estate to yeah. buy yeah. out in the woods and One stuff guy said like that. He was that, feeling so. ill. He was up in the neighborhood and he knew that his friend, Joe Barbara, lived up there, so he just went by. <laughs> yeah, just want to drop by. He hit a hundred other <laughs> top <laughs> mobsters. The, but it did show the story is Go ahead. Sorry, Sorry, and Joe Filardo, who was with him, actually, see, we, we, we surmise, you'll never know this for sure, that Joe Filardo, who was the old school mobster from the 30s and 20s uh, and nationally known, uh, he was kind of the power behind the throne by then. He was there to introduce Nick Sabella as the new boss of Kansas City, uh, make this formal, and, and he, can, he was the uh, out front boss. You know, Kansas City, kind of like Chicago. Uh, they had a, a, an out front boss. They had Sam Giancana, but Tony Accardo was always in the rear. They even had other bosses, even up yeah. to Iupa. You know, they still had Tony Accardo back in the back. Uh, and uh, uh, who was it? Uh, 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 God, I can't. There's another couple of guys. Uh, Paul, 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 Iupa, Regan, you had Iupa Paul, in there. was in the back. Yeah, they, were, yeah. they were like behind the scenes. Yeah, yeah. And, and, they were kind of the ultimate authority. When Kansas City, Joe Filardo did that really almost up till he died for Nick Savella. He, Nick was the, the, the boss, but Joe Filardo was the power behind the throne. 
So, uh, and he was up there because he was old school and he knew those guys back from the Prohibition days and, you know, they would listen to him and he was there to introduce Nick Savella. And, and I, you know, and that, that narcotics thing, is it, uh, it's always been the, the uh, myth, shall we say, or the rumor, the, the theory that they were there and that was one of the main, main reasons they were there is to how to deal with whether they should get in the narcotics business or stay in it because they were already in it. And, and actually, you know, the uh, 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 Joe Bonanno family stayed in it with Carmine Galente, you know, all the way through. Uh, but it, it was, I, it, you know, is there any real factual basis to that or any uh, solid information, do you know? Apparently so. You know, I think one of the things that sort of led to, uh, you know, Genovese's uh, power move, Gary, as you know, is, uh, the, and this is in the movie, the the, the attempted yeah. killing of Costello, Frank Costello, which led to him, you know, our friend Casey McBride, uh, the, the, the Costello expert, w- w- would say that led to Costello's uh, retirement. Then uh, Anastasia, as I understand it, the control of the docks and, and how, how the heroin was coming in from uh, Marseille, France, and Montreal and places like that, I think part of that control of the docks that Anastasia had also led to Anastasia being knocked off um, because, uh, b- because of the uh, uh, importation and distribution and who was going to control the distribution of the heroin. Now, the movie doesn't get a lot into the heroin issue. It's more of a, if at all, as I recall, it's more of a hero story. It's an interesting twist, Gary, as, a, as an intelligence officer yourself. It's an interesting twist where it focuses, and, and speaking of humanizing, it humanizes the police officers. Yeah. And it's kind okay. of from their story more, Gary, than it is... Genovese and the mobsters, Joey Gal. You, you got it shows the killing of Anastasia, so you got a little gunplay. It has the attempted killing of Costello, but then it's really a human interest story about that police officer and how he overcame a lot of. Uh, he was pushed aside and wasn't, you know, taken seriously and all that. And so it's an interesting twist on, you know, quote the mob movie because it humanizes the yeah, police they don't side. Of do it. that? I thought I was the only one that did, showed the police side of stories. Most people just show the mobster side. <laughs> Well, you, yeah, no, I think that's true. And this movie gets at that. And Arquette does a good job. And again, his sidekick, just a beautiful job by this guy, P.J. Byrne, who was, uh, you know, he was in, uh, uh, he's been in a lot of movies and a lot of television shows, yeah. Wolf of Wall Street and, and things like that. So oh, cool. really Great. good movie, Gary. I think you're going to like it. Now, meanwhile, so a couple of other things going on. Speaking of the Mob Museum in, 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 in Kansas City, if you don't mind yeah, me sort of fine, segueing yeah. off of that. I had a good time the other day, the latest blog post I did on Ernest Hemingway, and I thought a lot about you when I did this, Gary, because as you know, and you, you know better than anybody, Hemingway got his start right. in Kansas City in 1917. And it's, as, as you have said and, and written about, even that early, the black hand and the organized crime in Kansas City was an active force back then. And so one of the things I tried to point out is that Hemingway's experience in Chicago and Kansas City as a reporter at the Kansas City Star led to... Um, his knowledge of how the underworld works in, in some degree and, 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 and in the writing of his short story, The Killer. So a lot of that Kansas City background that, that you've written and talked about also affected his view. Oh, yeah, I read his that. That's interesting, yeah. I, I don't, don't really think about how Hemingway, you know, the famous, most famous writer in, in some areas, uh, if you will, uh, 
really made his bones, shall we say, in, in Kansas City and, and learned how to write and, and, and really got into that seamy underbelly of life, which, you know, that was, that was part of his thing. He liked to know about the seamy underbelly of life and, and you know, men and struggles and, and killing and, and all that. Then they went on to World War I to, to learn even more about that, that, kind of, that side of life, and, and he got real-life experience there to help him write those later stories. Well, as you know, man, it was... Uh where it's, so so this the old star building is what is it grand gary where, where the, the the old star is it's still there the building yep. that hemingway worked in and it, as you've written about and talked about i mean kansas city and you've done a magnificent job of bringing this to the forefront and we'll fast forward to the present at some point but you know kansas city back then in those world war one years and and beyond was a yeah. wide oh, yeah. open town man it was you know the the the, the, the jazz joints and the the you know the gambling dens and the prostitution and all that and Hemingway were covered yeah. crime for the Kansas City Star so he saw a lot of that. By the way, years several years ago, I went by that old Star building and the oh, guard yeah. let me in where he the newsroom where Hemingway worked. There's yeah. a plaque on the oh, wall where no. all the Star. Uh, yeah, somebody needs to go get well, that, Gary. I thought about that because I think they're yeah. trying to redo that building. There's a plaque that says all the Star employees that yeah. went to World War One. And Hemingway's wow. name is on that plaque. Somebody needs <laughs> to get that They probably have. They're making it, or they'll incorporate it. They're making it into condos, kind of a multi-use building. So you can you can live you can live there now. If you move to Kansas City, you can rent a car or buy a condo there. <laughs> well, hey, we need to yeah, make really, it a museum, like a Gary. Museum, we need to Kansas turn it City. into a Bob Museum. <laughs> we need to turn. Let's pull yeah, our, yeah, our limited pull resources. Ninety-five cents. Go buy yeah, the building. Yeah, yeah. Let's see if we can, let's see if we can get it for three thousand dollars if we pool our resources. But 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 Kansas City, you know, the the Hemingway era, all that, and then into where you uh, what you write about, Gary. If you don't mind me uh, uh, pumping up and, and plugging, uh, it's it's absolutely imperative that everybody get oh, your new you. documentary, um, Gary's first documentary, Gangland Wire, about. About the uh, which has rare surveillance audio that exposed the Kansas City Las Vegas connection. This 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 new one that just came out by Gary, uh, the battle with the brothers against the brothers. It's the the Spiro and and Savella clan battle for control. Right, right Gary of organized crime in Kansas right, that's City. It's about you know, I, and I was working it during that time. I just gotten transferred in transferred into the intelligence unit. And one of my early interviews really was with a guy who told me, and I couldn't believe he was telling me this. He said, oh, yeah. He said, uh, Carl Sparrow, he, he tried to get me to join his organization. I said, well, what do you mean? He said, he said he was going to move in on the Savellas, and I need to meet up. I need to join up with him. And uh, he said he was going to buy a bar and is going to have a back room, and we were all going to have we we're going to have our meetings back there. I mean, it sounded like, uh, you know, our gang, our, you know, our our club, our clubhouse. He it was like a bunch of little boys in a way. I didn't really believe it until, you know, over the years I realized that that was what was going on because other things that guy told me and another guy told me just started, you know, playing out right in front of us. I, I didn't really believe him at first, but yeah, it was a strong move uh, on the younger, young Turks, shall we say, Carl, Mike, and Joe Spiro to move on the established Savella organization, which had, you know, been in control since the 50s. Since 57, for sure, at the Appalachian Convention, and even before that, I mean, they were old school right out of the, they were the young guys during Prohibition. So, uh, you know, it's, uh, it is quite a story, It because it was quite a battle. We had bodies dropping and bombs going off everywhere for about a year. 
kind of a parallel, if you will, to the uh, 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 Cleveland situation during that time with the Irish guy, uh, Green. Danny Green, Danny I, I, Green I, I, yeah, thank you. Green, kind yeah, of a parallel yeah, yeah. with the Young Turks and the Old Guard were were clashing, and and the Old Guard, you know, ends up winning in the end. So we won't we won't spoil the ending, but let's just say that that it's kind of hard to displace the Old Guard. <laughs> well, and and I love what you have in there. You got former law enforcement officers like yourself who covered it, driving around to the actual sites. You at the it's like Bill Owsley, the FBI special agent in charge during that period, says in your documentary, every town has a, has a social club where these guys play poker, play cards, socialize, plot yeah. crimes, and you're out there in front of the one, the trap in Kansas City, bombed in <laughs> yeah. the back. In, in one of the, I, just, I, I don't think there's a city in the country, Gary, and, and you know I may be off with this, that had as many bombings <laughs> During that short period of time, I mean, this war really, and I may be oversimplifying it, the Nick Savella established, uh, made men, uh, put on the map at the Appalachian Summit versus these young, as, 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 as uh, Savella called them, hippies, or Tuffy DeLuna called them hippies. The bombings and the killings blew up the one guy in his wheelchair. Just an incredible story of revenge and yeah. counter-revenge and yeah. bombings. Unbelievable. Unbelievable uh, story. On the side of the Spiros, they were a little bit like the gang that couldn't shoot straight. Because <laughs> yeah. they started recruiting. They, see, they were recruiting non-Italians into their little gang and recruited these Peckerwoods. We call them Peckerwoods if you're not Italian in Kansas City. Recruited these Peckerwoods in and... and you know, and, and in one of the, I didn't have the actual tapes because they were never put in as evidence. And if they're not put in as evidence, they're destroyed. But I had the transcript from some actual tapes. So I hired actors to, to just impersonate Nick and Carl Savella talking about their different plans and their problems in this war with the Spiros. And, and so, you know, to, to hear them talk about, you know, how we're going to get these guys and it's just you know it was it was a pretty amazing time and and another thing is uh, like like Nick Sabella said you know he said they tried to kill Carl once and that's when they paralyzed him he said you know the guy didn't die now the guy didn't die now everything's different uh, and and that's when they went to the bombs yeah. because it's you so hard you can't get close enough to shoot somebody with a gun so you got to go to the bombs then and and then they have to go to the remote control detonated bombs because mob guys. They don't like, they know the value of, uh, or the problems of collateral damage with the bomb. So you gotta, you gotta uh, get some kind of a bomb that's just gonna get your guy and not, you know, school kids walking by or something like that. It was great, man, because I, and, and, and I have to say again, I don't think anybody in the business is doing better documentaries than you, Gary. This is a really superb documentary. I highly recommend it. Recommend everybody get it because Kansas City's mob wars, I don't think there's a more interesting story in the country, and Gary beautifully tells it. But it's really funny because it's kind of like you say, Gary, it's kind of a madcap. <laughs> they kept they kept trying to blow up cars, and they, they, they were trying to blow up Tuffy DeLuna's car outside of the Villa Capri. Yeah. Didn't work. And, they, you know, because the, 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 the informant said the, remote control device was on and on and on just the whole thing but then some yeah. of the bombs did work i also thought one of the, i love the way you humanize speaking of humanizing we're talking about mob town i love the way you humanize that gary when you talked about one night you were you were on surveillance and you were driving around in that area 
uh, near this near near these places where these guys hung out, and up next to you pulls a a a, a car full of uh, yeah. <laughs> mob guys, Savella family guys, and Tuffy DeLuna would tell the story. Yeah, Tuffy DeLuna, you and Tuffy oh, yeah. came well, yeah, out. Well, see, he was weird watching Carl Spiro, who they were trying to kill, and and, and I saw this. There's two or three of us, and we saw this car we didn't know with a bunch of like three or four people in it, and they kept driving by the tavern, drove by two or three times, and their their target. Carl Sparrow was in there by himself. There wasn't anybody else even in the bar except the bartender. And, and so, you know, I go get closer because we can't just let him run in and shoot him up and then try to catch him afterwards. I mean, that's, <laughs> it was such a dicey time for us. So we didn't, you know, we're asked, we're calling in saying, well, what do we do? And, you know, we sit back, we wait, you know, we're, we got to use, you know, choose your own common sense, your own judgment at that point in time because nobody down at the office can tell you what to do. And so I drive up a little closer just to see exactly who this is. And, and they start following me, and we get about four or five blocks away, and they pull up next to me to light. So I'm sitting there at the traffic light, and all of a sudden, I just feel somebody staring at me. And as the light changed, I, I just made a little quick glance over. Seemed like a normal, you know, kind of a normal look over. And there's Tuffy Luna just staring at me, and, and he gives me about a half a grin. And it's like he knows, because here I am, a, a 32, 31, 32-year-old white guy with, you know, in, in kind of a nondescript car in that neighborhood, and it was primarily an African-American neighborhood <laughs> by then, but we got four or five blocks over, I'm driving over in the African-American neighborhood, and people don't usually do that, like, that look like me. <laughs> they, they knew right then, did, he knew. <laughs> did, were, you, were you worried at some point? Now, you mentioned that you guys had your badges because at what point do you think? Because these are some pretty bad uh, uh, customers. I mean, yeah. these are some rough, some rough guys. In fact, wasn't Tuffy suspected to be one of the ones who went into that Virginia tavern and shot one of the Spiros, but or shot shot it up? But were you worried that at some point, late yeah. at night, prowling around a car, he might think you were one of the Spiro guys and start firing away on you guys? I mean, what point all, were you? It, 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 Thinking, you know what? We yeah, better show some badges. If you get mistaken by the other, the other team, shall we say, for the other team, uh, it's, there's always a certain risk to that. You just have to be careful, and and you know, I, I wasn't so afraid of any uh, uh, Savella people because they were older, more mature, and and less likely to be scared and 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 jump. But some of these guys that Carl Spiro had around him, they were younger, they were not even Italian, and they were you know, heavy drinkers and druggers, and, and, and you know, you, they're likely to jump. Those are the ones that really worried me. I had a couple of them chase me for a little bit one time when I was watching Carl Spiro, and, and I, I, got, I ran a red light, and, and uh, they got caught behind another car. So I, went, I got onto the highway and hit the highway, and they never caught up with me. <laughs> it just took off. Now, I love uh, I love how you found the, uh, you know, you told both sides of the story. You didn't try to make one side, you know, uh, favor one side or the other. You went and found that yeah. uh, lady who had t- told some fascinating stories about that strip bar out on Kansas City, Kansas, yeah. the Red Apple, where the Spiro clan sort of hung out. And her side of the story, how did you, how did you track down somebody who hung out with and drank yeah. with and the sparrows. And you know, sparrows. I did that for Nick Savella, too. I found that lawyer, Phil Cardarella. And, and, and yes, he Nick that and was great. He was in both my movies. And, and, and he talked some personal stuff about Nick, what kind of a person he was, you know, not as a criminal, but as a man. 
And I thought I think that's important to show that they're not one-dimensional characters. They have wives and families. That's the thing I always liked about working the mob is they got regular lives. They're just not, uh, you know, all stoned on uh, Delighted or Percocet or or uh, Oxycontin or heroin all yeah. the time. Then they run out and steal and go sell that and go get some more drugs. They're, you know, they've got wives and families and regular lives. Their kids go to school at uh, St. Pius at the Catholic, the nice Catholic high school up north, and they know each other. They're part of the community, and so I liked showing them. And so he showed that, and and the Spiro brothers were the same way. They were just on a little different economic level. They were a little bit lower in, in, in financially and, and uh, economic level, but they had wives and families. And, and that lady, uh, uh, she was married to a guy whose daughter was married to Carl Spiro for a while, and Carl actually adopted uh, that lady's son when, when they got married. Uh, and she had been at the, the last Mob Film Fest we had. She's been interested in this stuff, and I've had a comment from her before on one of my uh, blog pieces on my website, you can make comments. And I had a comment from her stepson, who had been the brother to uh, Carl's w uh, wife, who had died of, of accidental, uh, 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 she inhaled a piece of meat or a piece of food and, and, and choked mm -hmm. on it and died. Uh, and, and he's wanted to talk to me and he never did, he never would follow through, but she follows through. and. And I've talked to her a couple, three times. And then when I made this movie, I hadn't thought about her for a long time. And I'm making this movie and all of a sudden she makes another comment. And I thought, you know, I'm just going to hit her up and see what happens. I remember she was, she was not, she was not really a criminal at the time, shall we say. Those people that were professional criminals, when you hit them up to talk on camera, uh, they, they get, they get hinky. They don't really like to talk on camera. They're just so schooled in that. And, uh, I've tried to get several of them, but most of them won't do it. But she was never a criminal. Uh, she has a really interesting backstory, if you if you want to hear that, that I think. But but she, uh, yes. she said, yeah, I'd be happy to go on there. And, you know, she was she was a goldmine of information. She knew all the brothers. I could tell you a lot more about how well she knew some of those brothers, but but I told her I wouldn't repeat this other stuff out, out in public. But uh, she knew them really well and, and had known them for a long time. And... So I told, I told her after we got done, I said, you know, Sharon, I wish I'd have known you back in the day because I think she was pretty hot back in the day. I had another guy tell me he knew her back <laughs> in the day and said she was hot. Plus, I think I could have gotten information out of her because <laughs> she knew a lot. <laughs> did, did she work no, at no, that she Red Apple work. Bar? She worked at another she... bar owned by a mob associate guy named Sophie okay. Ronaldo downtown. She worked at that bar for a long time. But the side story on her, which I found fascinating, she ended up, you know, you, she works in a downtown bar. She's pretty well known. Uh, she's, she's not a criminal. She doesn't have, you know, her, right. her direct people are not criminals. Her husband was a uh, truck driver in the Teamsters Union, and, but he was not a criminal. He was just a truck driver. And, and, and yeah. her other family were not criminals particularly. And she ended up getting a job as an administrative assistant for a, one of the circuit court judges down over in the courthouse. She probably, probably met, she probably met somebody wow. that uh, was an administrator or somebody over in the courthouse. And I mean, it's county politics. I mean, it's, it's not as bad as Cook County, but it's county politics. And you know somebody and, and, and they want to take care of you, well, they might get you a job. And, you know, she and worked, she worked the at the courthouse. And, uh, wow. She was not, uh, she wasn't the kind of person who was going to go out and, and, you know, rat people out particularly, but she did do one thing. She had a big heart. Uh, she had a huge big heart. Yeah. And, and 
she had a, a person come in and say that my, her son or her brother or something was in the penitentiary, convicted, but there's a DNA test that they've run and, and it shows that he was not guilty. But somehow they did, or, or, or they believe he's not guilty and they want to get the, DEA t uh, the DNA test run. And she doesn't know how to get that done. Yeah. And she didn't have a lawyer, and there is an innocence project, but, but Sharon, Sharon decided she'd just help her herself. And she said, well, we just had one come through here, and, and she prints off a motion. She said, here's a copy of the motion that you file. Now, if you just go back and, and retype this and then put the right names in there and just file it pro se as a, you know, without a lawyer, why, uh, you'll probably you'll get the DNA test. So she, she did that, and, and it <laughs> It proved out he was not guilty and he got released. He was exonerated. But it came out during this process, it came out that, that she'd done that, that Sharon had done that. And there's a huge, there's a big, one of the bigger rules in the circuit court was for the court staff to not help anybody on either side of whether it's the prosecution or the, yeah. or the defendant or the, uh, uh, or the, you know, either party in the civil suit. You just, you, you can give them information about, you know, this filing's here, you know, there's a due date coming up here or something like that. But you can't yeah, like get yeah. a, here's a copy of a motion that you just copy this and file it. You can't, it's like practicing law without a license. And, and, and the judge fired her for it. Uh, even though the guy was found not guilty, he fired her. Wow. I think he felt like he didn't have a choice. Wow. It must have come out. Some, I don't know ex exactly how it came out, but it must have come out that the judge could not not enforce the rule. So interesting little side story on Sharon, and, and she had some, a lot of uh, interesting little tidbits on uh, the Spiro brothers. Well, you do a great job of finding people, not only the surveillance audio and the, the court records. I've always said this. Your book, I've got the hard copy and the ebook copy of Leaving Vegas, your, your book about the Kansas City-Las Vegas connection. And in the ebook, you've got those links to the documents. But you've always been great about finding people. This new one with those, uh, you know, you've got law enforcement people, you've got her, uh, really tells that story beautifully of, the, of that, that young upstart group, the Sparrows, trying to knock out the, the entrenched, older, um, hardcore Savella crime family and how it just didn't work because those those Savellas, man, those guys were yeah. were hardcore. I mean, they, they 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 you talk about blowing people up. In fact, I know you and I have talked about this. And Frank Collada, you and you and Frank have both expressed that there may be some reason to believe that it was the Kansas City people behind blowing up Lefty's car in, in Las Vegas, Lefty Rosenthal. Because as some of your audio shows, the the Kansas City family was upset that he was. Was was drawing so much heat on himself, and that 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 Kansas City mode of attack yeah. through bombs was man, that, that was something time, else. Particularly, I mean, they had they had somebody, and it was I think it was one guy by the end that was really uh, he was their bomb maker. Uh, you know, the uh, uh, because there's two bombs. Uh, I got an ATF agent that's in the movie who worked two of the attempts on Carlsboro mm -hmm. before they actually uh, ended it. Uh, and they were built. They were able to recover them unexploded, and, and they were built by the same yeah. person. Uh, so, uh, so then they get him with a third bomb. So there, and a third bomb was uh, there wasn't enough left of it to really say con conclusively it was the same person, but it had a lot of similarities. It was remote detonated and and had a large amount of explosives bigger than what they really needed, and and so there was three in a row at the last couple three or last 
three years, I guess, or two years before they killed him. And, and it wasn't long, that was 1984, and it wasn't long after that. I don't remember when they tried to get Lefty, but, but it wasn't long after 1984 that they tried to get Lefty. Well, it was, uh, it was uh, I can't imagine what the people in Kansas City must have thought during that period when buildings were being blow, blown yeah. up in the River Key and cars were being blown up. People must have thought, man, this is, uh, oh, yeah, what's going were, on? You know, I mean, bombs yeah, going crazy. up all I mean, the time. That, they, it, the, bomb, the bombing scared people so bad they had that really nice uh, uh, entertainment district, if you will, that everybody in the city loved. To this day, when I, like there's a Kansas City History Buffs Facebook page that's got about 15,000 people on it. To this day, all I have to do, and, and what I did just before our film festival, I started posting pictures from the River Key, and they'll just go nuts on it. They will link, and they will comment, and they will share, and, and, and they just love the River Key, Those all of us of a certain age that are interested in that time. And, and so, uh, you know, it, they blew that place up, basically. They scared everybody off as my Gangland Wire movie got a guy in there that was working down there at the time. He said after the last explosion and one building got blown up, he said people just quit coming down. They just stopped immediately. And he lost his job and his place closed down and, and all the rest of them just closed down within the next two or three months. I was there a couple of years ago talking to uh, some younger people in one of the coffee shops. Now, you know, it's... Some some yeah. places are coming back in that empty space where that oh, one yeah. big explosion was. Some of the younger uh, barista, you know, some of the people w working in that coffee shop were telling me they learned a lot about what had happened back there from oh, yeah. your website because you know that they're, they're so yeah. young that that was all a part of. They weren't yeah. even born when all that yeah, stuff a, was happening. So no, I, hey, I got to. I, I, I did a screen. Oh, go ahead, Gary. Sorry. There was a house built where that big explosion was. And that whole building went down. And there's a house built, it's, it's mainly parking lot now, and they took out the street, they closed down the street and made it all in the parking lot. But in the edge of that parking lot, there's a big, nice, modern-looking, beautiful home built down there. And the guy approached me, and he said, uh, he told me where he lived. He said, now, I think that explosion was right there behind my house. I said, that explosion was practically, your house is practically sitting on top of where that hole was. <laughs> I think I know what you're talking about. Is it that blue house? It's kind of yeah, like a blue yeah. two-story. It's on Delaware. Yeah, I, mean, I know on what Delaware, you're talking about. Just a, a block off of, of the main drag down through there, Delaware. It's really modern looking. It's kind of out of place. It's like there's no other houses. It looks like a house, house sitting in the middle I of a bunch of buildings. I know what you're of, talking uh, about. Buildings, so. <laughs> well, listen, I got to also, I got got to say one more thing about Kansas City. And we need to. This summer, when we have our uh, Mob World Summit in Kansas City, we need to get down to the River Key. But also, one more interesting tidbit, I just have to mention sort of out of the blue. I've been reading, uh, you mentioned the, the Irishman. I've been reading a book about Hoffa called In Hoffa's Shadow uh, by a Harvard law professor named Jack Colt Goldsmith, who's, who, uh, whose stepfather was Chucky O'Brien, right. one of the yeah. suspects who supposedly made... So anyway, fascinating book. I did not know this until I, I'm about halfway through it now. Chucky O'Brien was right. born in Kansas City, and his mother Sylvia, who made all the connections with the mob characters up in uh, Detroit for Hoffa and all that, was also from Kansas City. I didn't know I, I, I that. I think there's a Kansas City connection. I think maybe he has a, a, his son, or there's still some relatives around here. I had a guy tell me recently that he knew one of the, the relatives of Chucky O'Brien. 
So I, I didn't really explore that very much. It might be something odd that maybe I can get them come on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, especially with all that really? Hoffa stuff real big right now. Of course, Chucky O'Brien, his, his involvement is, is, or whether yeah. he was or wasn't involved. I think involved. he was an unwitting was dupe myself. Big, I may topic. be wrong. I, I don't know what kind of guy he was, but uh, he might have just been a, they might have duped him into doing that. Because those mob guys, they're slick, man. They know that you you got to put a guy at ease before you're going to get him isolated, especially yeah. a guy like Jimmy Hoffa. And any, whoever they're going to hit, you got to put him at ease and get him to willingly go to some place where there's no witnesses and there's no chance of escape it, it, where they can really do it and, and do it quietly. And to get you, that means you got to get a friend. You've got to get somebody who will put him at ease enough that he feels safe, that like they won't kill me now because, you know, here my stepson's here with me. So they, they probably duped him into taking him over there and then dropped him off and, and uh, then the kid's trapped. You know, I mean, he, he, he may be sitting out in front or he drives away and he's going to come back after he gets a call because he can't be in this meeting. And, uh, you know, what's he going to do? Uh, go in, he have to go into witness protection. And, uh, un- unbelievable. Yeah, and unbelievable that to this day now, Dan Moldea, the investigative journalist who wrote the book, a book in the yeah. 70s, The Hoffa Wars, and Eric Sean of Fox News now, I've got some, I know you know this, I've got yeah, some I've new that. developments. I haven't really looked into it yet, but I'd seen a, some kind of a headline or something about that on Facebook, I guess. Yeah, Dan might yeah. be a good podcast. It's, it's you know, they their take is it's, uh, he was, uh, uh, Dan's take is Sal Bergulio, one of the one of the uh, New Jersey mobsters, uh, is that was the actual shooter, and then they took him in a they took Hoffa in a fifty five gallon drum to a site in New Jersey where they think yeah. they've located uh, or, or the general area that they think it is. So there's yeah. more to come, more big news well, that, to come. That's on Sal Bergulio in the New Jersey angle that that would uh, that would be what I'd go for. They Tony Pro had the most. You know, animosity, and and he, he was more likely than anybody to do it. But all the mob bosses had to agree on that one. They had to agree. Oh. You just don't go kill Jimmy Hoffa on a whim. So, can you believe that? And a lot of people. Speaking of those uh, coffee people that that you know learned about the River Key from your website. A lot of people, you know, younger people, the, the name Hoffa. But as you know, Gary, one time, man, Jimmy Hoffa. Jimmy, everybody oh, knew yeah. the name oh, Jimmy yeah. Hoffa. He had an easy to remember name, I think. Maybe he was huge. It. It's like Mickey Mantle, you know. <laughs> Got a cool name, easy yeah. to remember name. Yeah. Everybody yeah. remembers it, but he was huge. He was so huge that Richard Nixon pardoned him. That's why he was out of the penitentiary. After they pulled out yeah. all the yeah. stops and to- put him in jail, and he was proven to be a corrupt union leader. But when you're a union leader, you control votes. So Richard Nixon pardoned him. Unbelievable. And to this day, 1975 to now, it's still being debated who did it. It's like the uh, Bugsy yeah. Siegel killing. And it's, it's amazing how a lot of these mob, these big, high level, high profile mob killings still aren't, you know, right. fully yeah, resolved. It's Charlies interesting. We're back to the 1950s. People talk about and wonder who, who killed the two Charlies. I get that question every once in a while from older people. If I had any idea, right. right. In Kansas City. That caused the Kefauver hearings to come to Kansas City, really, when they killed these two guys. Because it was so high profile. It was one of those shocking things that the country was shocked. Kansas City's an incredible mob town, Gary. And you, you, Terrence O'Malley, and some others, man, it's it's an amazing story. And, again, your latest documentary, I was blown away by it. I appreciate it. 
All right, I think we ought to wind this down now. I'll do my little yep. uh, uh, lead out. If you have a friend or a relative who has a problem with drugs or alcohol, make your first call to first call. Call 816-361-5900 or go to their website, www.firstcallkc.org. And if you want to read some good mob blogs, especially about the mob and culture, look for Larry Henry at the uh, themobmuseum.org, right? www.themobmuseum.org. And they got a lot of other information out there. If you're out in Las Vegas, you need to go to the Mob Museum. You need to call up Frank Collada when you're out there. Or just Google his name and look for Frank Collada's tour. We'll give him, Frank, a little plug. He's, he's helped me by coming on the podcast several times. And, and uh, so... Uh, I'm, uh, don't forget to hit me up on my Venmo app, and, and you can uh, buy me a cup of coffee or a shot and a beer for a little bit to help support the podcast or make a donation. I've added some uh, awards in my donation, Larry. You've got already got all three of them, so you don't need them. <laughs> but uh, uh, either, either <laughs> of my movies, for $25, I'll give you a, either one of my two movies, or uh, I'll give you a, a gift certificate to get the Kindle version of uh, Leaving Vegas, my book. So I got that, and, and if you go higher than that, well, you'll be surprised what you get. I'll, I'll take care of you. I had a guy get hold of me. He says, man, he said, I, I, you just really surprised me with all this stuff I got in the mail the other day because he didn't know he was getting anything. But So anyhow, uh, uh, that's my plug for myself and that latest movie. It's on Amazon Prime, although I don't make a dime out of that. Then You know what I get out of that? Almost nothing, folks. So rent it for me. Get a dollar ninety. Give me a dollar ninety-nine and... I'll get a buck off of that, and, but just go, just go watch it because I think it's worth watching. I, I'm proud of it, and, and I just want people to see it. Uh, and Larry, I, I appreciate your feedback on that, and I've gotten a lot of other compliments like that. You know, I've, uh, each each one of my documentaries gets a little bit better. I, I've got another idea about one. We'll we'll see if I can do another one. That last one I said I was never I was done, but I may have another one in me. All your right. documentaries are great, All Gary. Right. It's thanks, always fun thanks, to be Larry. with you. Night, I really enjoyed it. Talk to you later. Good night, Gary. Music provided by our good friend and super fan from Portland, Oregon, Casey McBride. Thanks, Casey.